0: Our reading this morning, as I said, is taken from Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent, and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, but faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. (coughs) Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira. Four churches, we heard what... Jesus had to say to them this morning. Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. We'll look at those three tonight. The seven churches of Asia. But why these seven and not any others? There were plenty of other churches around in Asia at the time. Seven has traditionally been seen as a perfect number. In the ancient world where people worked by the lunar calendar... Each lunar cycle of 28 days was marked out by four different phases of the moon, each of which lasted seven days. So that's why we have a seven-day week. Seven is frequently symbolized completeness or perfection. So fairly early on, people found a symbolic significance in the, the fact that John wrote to seven churches. He wrote to seven churches, but through them, he was addressing the church universal. That was one of the ideas. Another popular line of interpretation, going back a thousand years or so, is that each of the seven churches represents a phase in church history. So in the 12th century a Cistercian abbot called Peter of Talontes suggested that Ephesus was the church of the apostles, Smyrna the church of the martyrs, Pergamum the church of the heretics, and Thyatira the church of the confessors and doctors. The last three churches, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea, he saw portrayed in the church of his own day. 400 years later, in the time of the Reformation, the English clergyman, Thomas Brightman, said a very similar thing. Except he claimed that the hypocrites at Sardis were Lutherans, the church at Philadelphia were Calvinists, and the complacent at Laodicea were Anglicans. Some of you will know the Schofield Reference Bible, which bases its entire interpretation of Revelation on chapter 1, verse 19, where John is told to write down what he has seen. That's understood to be the vision of Christ in chapter 1. What now is, that's the message to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. That's the whole period of the church. What will take place later is everything from Revelation 4 onwards, all of which is purported to take place after the return of Christ who would come and rescue the true church from the earth and leave the rest of the world to its fate. This approach, called dispensationalism, was popularised by the Left Behind series of books, which were turned into a film starring Nick Cage. But that interpretation never really took off over here the way it did in both North and South America. But this dispensationalist interpretation, again, sees each of the churches representing a phase in history. Ephesus, the apostolic church. Smyrna, the church persecuted by Rome. Pergamum, the state church. Heretical Thyatira, the papal church. Sardis was the church of the Reformation, since a few remained pure. Philadelphia was the church of revival and mission, and Laodicea, well, that's us. That's the lukewarm church of today. If you ask yourself the most important question as to whether any of that would have made any sense to the Christians who first read these letters in the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea, the answer is probably not. So we should be correspondingly sceptical or cautious about such interpretations. Actually, it may simply be that since the distance between each church is about 50 kilometres, and that's a day's journey in the ancient world, all seven churches may simply just have been on a circular road that marked out a postal route. And kind of one person went to one church, delivered a letter, read it, onto the next church the next day and so on, a week's travelling. Though it has to be said that no such road linking all the churches in that way has been conclusively found. But these seven churches were bound together. Inasmuch as in each of these seven towns there was a group of Christians, and they wouldn't have met in a large, well-equipped building such as this one. Christians met all over the places in those days. They met in retail premises, they met in workshops, they met in storage facilities, they met on business premises, in places set aside for hospitality or leisure, they met in burial grounds. They also, perhaps predominantly, met in people's homes. The average size of each congregation probably would have been quite small. Sometimes they could be openly, often they found themselves meeting surreptitiously. Because there was a tendency to regard Christians in that day and age with mistrust and suspicion. People suspected them of being atheists. Because in those days, there were plenty of gods to choose from. It didn't matter what which one you worshipped, so long as you worshipped one of them. Everybody trekked down to the temple to worship a god set up in a temple that you could see Christians didn't do that they worshipped an invisible god and their reluctance to attend pagan ceremonies meant that they stuck out like sore thumbs and the way in which they opted out of pagan ceremonies which were such a part of everyday life made them the object of people's suspicions why weren't they joining in? were they dissidents? Were they seeking to undermine the fabric of society? Were they really loyal to the emperor? Placing a pinch of incense on the imperial altar in those days would serve as an expression of allegiance to Rome. But many Christians refused to do that because they rightly saw it as an act of worship. And they were prepared to call nobody lord but Christ. So they were seen as being politically disloyal they were perceived as being unpatriotic. They were subject to arrest and punishment by prison, exile, sometimes even death. Sadly, the Jews had a major role in denouncing Christians to the authorities. Many Jews felt that the Christians' worship of a crucified criminal as the divine Messiah was nothing short of blasphemous. And it would have galled them immeasurably to see many of the Gentile God-fearers who had previously attended the synagogue now becoming Christians instead. They felt that Christianity offered a perversely easy way of salvation. All you had to do was believe and all your sins were forgiven. They objected to Christians distorting or even setting aside the Jewish law. That was where they were able to make life difficult. Because Judaism was a recognised religion in the Roman Empire. The sensibilities of Jews were respected to the extent that they were not obliged to participate in acts of pagan worship. And for a long time, Christians were just able to say, well, we're a kind of branch of Judaism. And they got away with it. Many people saw them as just a, a kind of eccentric kind of Jewish worship. But as relations between Jews and Christians worsened, Jews started disowning Christians. They don't belong to us. They're nothing to do with us. They shouldn't have the exemptions that we have. As Christians were denounced by the authorities, they came under increasing local pressure to pay homage to the emperor, to show where their loyalties lay, and if they didn't, so much the worse for them. And as we look at the seven churches to whom John addressed his apocalypse, we can see that they were affected by this situation in different ways. The church in Ephesus put the shutters up against the outside world and became introverted and inward-looking. The churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia suffered considerable persecution. The churches at Pergamum and Thyatira both had elements within them who were prepared to compromise with the outside world. The churches at Sardis and Laodicea both seemed to flourish without having too much trouble from the outside world, but behind their success lay a complacent half-heartedness that is exposed by Jesus' message to them it's because all of these churches were up against it in different ways that each of the letters has the risen Lord speaking to them speaking through the spirit and saying what reward he will bestow on the one who overcomes or who conquers who is victorious the letters were written to strengthen individual members in times of adversity and to encourage churches as a whole to reflect on their identity and context the letters are written in the style of contemporary imperial edicts. From the second century, we have a copy of a letter originally written by King Darius I, which says, These are the words of the king of kings, Darius Histaspas, to his servant Gadatas. I have learned that you did not obey my commands in every respect. It's exactly the same style. This is how kings in the ancient world wrote letters and addressed their subjects and issued commands. And John consciously imitates this style as he communicates not what an earthly ruler has to say, but what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has to say to his subjects. And in each case Jesus says, I know what's been going on, and he provides a penetrating analysis of their situation and either rebukes or encourages them accordingly. Ending his address each time with words that clearly echo the kind of thing Jesus used to say all the time in the course of his earthly ministry. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So to us today, in 21st century Horsham, what is the Spirit saying to Brighton Road Baptist Church? Now there's a good question. It might be a helpful approach to look at what the Spirit says to each of the seven churches in Asia and ponder which of them actually corresponds most closely to our identity and context. We could read the letters and think, yeah, that is true of churches in other parts of the world today who are suffering persecution, who are up against it, who are feeling marginalised, who are really struggling. But which of the letters most fits us here in Horsham? If we read one of those letters, can we see ourselves, as it were, reflected in a mirror? And through that, can we discern what the Lord might want to say to us in our context? Which of those seven hats fits? And which should we be wearing? One curious feature is that all seven letters are addressed, not to the churches themselves, but to the angel of each church. Some people have said that the angels might be human church leaders, identified as messengers, but John elsewhere consistently uses the term angel of supernatural being, so this is perhaps not likely. So does each church have some kind of guardian angel? Is there an angel of Brighton Road Baptist Church? Well, maybe. But Walter Wink has written a thought-provoking book, thought-provoking book called Unmasking the Powers, and he explores in it what he refers to in the book's subtitle as the invisible forces that determine human existence and he's got a chapter on the angels of the churches and he takes a functional view of the language of angels in revelation chapters 2 and 3 and suggests that each angel represents the actual spiritual entity of the church so these angels encompass every aspect of a church's current reality good and bad alike The angel gathers up into a single hole all the the aspirations and the grudges, the hopes and the vendettas, the fidelity and the unfaithfulness of a given community of believers and lays it all before God for judgment, correction and healing. By addressing the angels, Jesus is giving each church a spiritual health check, a kind of MOT if you like. So if the angel of Bright Road Baptist Church is an expression of our collective personality as a congregation, and reflects on what we are called to do in the light of our identity, what can we discern about the characteristics of the angel of Bright Road Baptist Church in Horsham? Walter Wink says that there are a number of things that we can look at actually to discern our character, our DNA, what we are beneath the surface. But he says, start by looking at the surface. Look around at the architecture and ambience of our buildings. What do these say about us as a congregation? Particularly as this is the congregation that actually built the place. What do these bricks and mortar say about us—the kind of people that we are and where our priorities lie? How? are we shaped and moulded by the buildings in which we worship God? Winks rightly observes that one way or another, all the values, prestige needs, aesthetics and class status of a congregation will be projected onto brick, board and stone. Look around. What do these buildings say about us? How much are we influenced by our setting? Well, what about us as people? Our economic class, our income threshold, our racial and ethnic background, our level of education, age and gender balance. Every church is different in terms of the makeup of its members, its demography. How do we dress? How do we talk? What are our expectations about how people should dress and talk? What are our unspoken ideologies? What do we not expressing words, but what do we really think and feel deep down on the inside? How is what we do shaped and moulded by who we are? He also suggests we reflect on our power structures, our patterns of authority. Are we liberating or controlling? Are we risk-averse? Do we prefer to stick to what we know is safe? Or do we welcome suggestions that might take us down unfamiliar paths are we adventurous in exploring new areas, are we willing to go where no one has gone before what kind of angel do we have in this respect bold or timid another question is how we handle conflict how good are we at speaking the truth in love to one another or or do we pretend because we love people and we don't want to upset them or do we speak the truth without a great deal of love sometimes? Or do we just actually forget about truth and love and just let rip without really reflecting on what whether we say is true or all the effect it might have? Is there an openness to express different opinions to support each other even when we don't see eye to eye with one another? Is it a safe place to be honest when we get it wrong because we know that we will be forgiven? And we will forgive others when they get it wrong. And when things go wrong, do we just pretend that everything's fine? Because on the surface it all looks alright. When we're seething underneath and we know that stuff really is, is, is not healthy. Or are we quick to point the finger and allocate the blame? How much are we still affected by things people said and did years ago? Long forgotten by the people that said and did them. But we've never let it go how much are we shaped and molded by relationships present and historic well what about our worship eh? that says a huge amount about us as a church musical tastes style of preaching interpretation of the bible songs or hymns how we feel about the balance of songs or hymns brilliant musicians that is one really positive thing about right road and singers as well thank you do our services enable us all to join together in worshipping the risen Lord? Or does the worship sometimes get in the way and become a source of frustration? Is our worship inclusive of everybody here? How do other people see us? How connected are we to our neighbourhood? How connected are we to each other? Are we evangelistic or nurturing or both? Do people come to faith here? Do people here connect with God at a deep spiritual level? Or do we just bounce superficially off each other? Do we hear from God in this place? Do we speak for God in this place? How good are we we at communicating with each other and our neighbours? And what about our history? To what extent is who we are and what we do determined by who we are and what we did... And what happened 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? What from the past is holding us back? What from the past is giving us confidence when we face the future? The language of angels, then, is used by John to express what is really going on at a spiritual level behind the visible facade. Jesus clearly addresses the angel of each church because he wants and expects the church to change. But the language of angels reminds us that any lasting change needs to take place at a deep level. Otherwise, whatever we do, things will sometimes just revert to how they used to be before we try to do anything about them. Change needs to be profound if it's going to be lasting. I mentioned a moment ago, how do others see us? But surely the most important thing is, how does Jesus see us? If Jesus were addressing the angel of the church in Brighton Road, What would he have to say to us? I know this about you. What would that be? What are we doing well? What would be good on our school report? What aspects require improvement? If we have ears to hear, what is the Spirit saying to us as a church? Some of you in house groups will be thinking about this passage next week. If you choose to do so, there is the opportunity to reflect on this question. We think about the church, we think about Jesus. What do we feel Jesus might want to say to us as a church? And if you feel out of that meeting that there is something that Jesus might be saying to us, then... There's an opportunity, should you wish to do so, to share it at the church meeting. And if you're not part of a house group, and you want to become one for the autumn when we're studying Revelation, then have a word with me, or with Robin Thomas, and we will point you in the direction of a group, because a number of them are looking at it across the coming weeks. But whether we're part of a group or not, all of us have the responsibility, the opportunity... To tune in and reflect and listen. What is the Lord saying to us? What does he say about who we are? How we do things? What does he have to say about what he wants us to do? If there were one thing about Brighton Road that Jesus wanted to change, what would it be? And I'm sure there would be 250 different opinions. I would like to see this change at Brighton Road. Okay. Which of those is what Jesus is saying? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to this church today. One thing I do know is that Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Exactly what that means for us is hard to work out in auction sometimes. But he chose the cross and he calls us to follow in that path. Costly, loyal, devotion to him, the
0: one who gave his life for us.